So they're looking for what the shortcut is. They look at the wording of the thing with the exercise balls, right? And they're like, well, it says, it says put them on the yoga mat on top of the hill. It doesn't say put them on top of the hill. Just on the yoga mat, that is on top of the hill. So what if I got the yoga mat and brought it down <laughs> and then put the exercise balls? Ah, yeah, fair enough. Shortcut. You found it. Well done. You won. Uh, or something like there's a task where uh, in a later season, they have to get a coconut as far away from the house they're living in as possible, but they're not allowed to leave the house. How would you do that? Well, one of the guys, he, he gets a, a courier to pick up the coconut, take it to the post office, and then mail it to the Prime Minister of Fiji. <laughs> Except it's illegal to import coconuts into Fiji, so it stays at the post office. He still wins, though, because he gets it, most of them are just like throwing it over the fence or whatever. So it, we love that. There's something about us. It might just be the, the Aussie like underdog spirit, where we want to find the cheeky way of doing things. But we love that idea of finding shortcuts, don't we? Work smarter, not harder. Uh, now, we'd love that to be true in the Christian life as well, I think. Wouldn't it be great if there was some shortcut to maturity? Like if I said to you, hey, here is the key, the one thing you have to do in order to grow in Jesus, have more joy in Him, and find victory over sin more than ever before just by following this one simple technique. Wouldn't that be great? And yet, as we saw last week, <laughs> there are no shortcuts to Christian growth. There's no path like this. There's no cheeky way of doing it, right? Because you cannot microwave maturity. Just think about that concept, Rob, if we could keep the PowerPoint, please. There we go. Um, microwaving maturity. I mean... Is microwave food ever as good as the real thing? No, no. Uh, so too, microwaving maturity is never as good. It never quite works out. We all know actually that the best things in life come slowly and with intentional investment. Think about the relationships we have. Think about the careers that we build. The best things come slowly. In fact, if something comes too quickly... It's like when someone wins the lottery, right? I don't know if you, you've seen the stats on this, but if people who go and, and they win millions of dollars or whatever, 70% of them end up worse than when they started some years later. It's because it's, you know, when, when you're not actually earning the money and building the skills to manage it and, and sort of steward it wisely, then you, you don't know what to do when there's this sudden influx of it. And so that the people that learn to manage money wisely over time are the ones who manage it well for a lifetime, right? The best things come slowly and with intentional investment. You cannot microwave maturity. And so we need to pay attention to the things that form us slowly over time. Things like our habits. The things that we do bit by bit that add up into routines that then become sort of our muscle memory or our second nature, the habits of life. And these things, these habits, take us in a direction and form who we are. Do you want to know who you're going to become? Look at your habits. Your habits will tell you. And so as Christians, it is absolutely central. Absolutely central. It is essential that we look at our habits and that we form godly habits. When we come to the Scriptures, we find in particular that there are three habits that the Lord wants us to develop. There are lots of habits, 
but there are three in particular that he promises will bring growth. Would you like to know what they are? All right. These three habits are, we call them the ordinary means of grace. Actually, I'm going to go back before I tell you. Can we go back one, Rob? I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag yet. Thanks. So they call them the ordinary means of grace. I just want to actually explain what this phrase means. So, so the ordinary means of grace, grace in the sense that these are habits that are in fact gifts from God. Okay? Sometimes we get this idea that, that Jesus saves us, but then I put in all the work. That's not really true. It's God's grace from beginning to end. From the moment he saves you, from the moment he brings you into the kingdom and onwards into eternity. It's God's grace from beginning to end, right? And we we get that sense, Hebrews 2.13, this is the one that came up on the screen. Uh, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, work out there in the sense of it's, it's... Under the surface, right, Jesus saves us. That's an internal reality. We can't see it, but but bring it to the surface in our works. Uh, Kids, there's an experiment you can do at home to do with, um, what is it, salt and and water and a container. There's something else you add to it. Uh, You might have to Google what it is because I can't remember what it is. But there's this experiment you do, and the salt actually goes through the container and comes on the outside. Wait, Google that. Google how do you get salt on the outside of a container. And, um, and, and what that, that, that's sort of like the reality we're talking about here. Uh, Jesus saves us and then the effects of our salvation sort of come to the surface of our lives. Work out your salvation. Work it to the outside, in other words. And do it with fear and trembling because you know what you've been saved from. Right? But notice the next bit. It is God who works in you. You're putting in the work to bring the effects of your salvation to the outside of your life and your habits. But it is actually God at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. It's grace from beginning to end. That's why we call these things the ordinary means of grace. But also, we call them ordinary. What's the opposite of ordinary? Yeah, got it in one. Extraordinary as in rare or only for a few But these ordinary means of grace are, in fact, for every Christian. You don't have to go to Bible college to learn how to do them. You don't have to learn to speak in tongues. You don't have to stand on the edge of the beach longing for a voice from heaven to open up to you, right? These are ordinary things that ordinary Christians like you and me can learn to do, and they bring growth. They're ordinary also in the sense that God has ordained them. He has ordained them to bring growth. When we do them, growth follows because God is at work in them. Ordinary means of grace. Now, let me tell you what they are. Scripture, prayer, sacraments. There you go. This is how God promises to grow his people. Excited? Yay, woo. (laughs) Right? Now, we know this. This should be obvious. <laughs> Scripture, yeah, of course, read the Bible and pray and, and meet with God's people and, and be baptized and share communion. That's what sacraments means. Scripture, prayer, sacraments. There's nothing too exciting about this. They're the ordinary means of grace. Though I do want to add some words here that help us understand how these things actually work as habits. And this might just challenge you a little bit. It's not just reading Scripture, is it? That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us actually to be immersed in Scripture. For every part of our life to be soaked by His Word. 
And it's not just saying the Lord's Prayer every now and then or saying grace before a meal. It's being steadfast in prayer over and over and over seeking the Lord. And then in terms of the sacraments, you you might not have thought of this before, but baptism and communion, baptism, right, is something we do once, but communion, we do it every week. Uh, These are actually entry points into the people of God, right? Baptism signals us, uh, sort of signals us out as someone who has publicly begun to follow Jesus and publicly allied themselves with his people. And then communion is our way of saying all together, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, right? And so these things have to do with our fellowship. It is not just about being baptized once and then check the box and then I meet and I have communion and I eat the little thing and, oh, great, I've checked the box, I'm doing the ordinary meeting. No, 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 no. It points us to the reality that we are a family. Fellowship is how God grows us and we are devoted in fellowship. There is something I do to contribute to the family of God. This is the ordinary means of grace, immersed in Scripture, steadfast in prayer, devoted in fellowship. And we see these things in the early church, friends. Uh, Acts 2.42, right? Flip there if you want. I will chuck it on the screen. Acts 2.42, it records for us the first Christian church that ever met. And what did they do? What did they do? Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves key word, they committed themselves. They devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching, immersed in Scripture. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, not this sort of wafty idea of a feeling of fellowship, but the people, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, sacraments, and family, right? Fellowship, they devoted themselves to the fellowship and the prayers. There's the ordinary means of grace. Early church did it. They formed the habit. That's what marked them as the people of God. The ordinary means of grace. And remember, growth doesn't come by finding shortcuts. It comes by building brick on brick in those ordinary means of grace, building habits over time. Now, does laying bricks always look glamorous? No. (laughs) You see some bricklayers out doing their work, and it's like, no, that is sweaty, hard work that those men are doing right? It doesn't always feel exciting when you have to fix something around the house, lay another brick. But God is at work in the ordinary, isn't he? Bricks add up over time and they build things, beautiful things. They build homes, they build monuments, they build landmarks and schools and hospitals and churches, things that are beautiful and useful and that last and that leave a legacy. And God promises that if you lean into these ordinary means of grace, He will build you into a beautiful, useful, lasting, God-glorifying person who is becoming more and more like your Savior, Jesus. That is the promise that goes along with these things. Anything but ordinary, right? Ordinary only on the surface. The results are extraordinary. And so today, we're digging into the first of these three core habits, immersed in Scripture. So let's pray together, and we'll open God's Word. Lord, I do pray that 
um, as we think about our habits in the year to come, help us be honest with ourselves. Exposing us what you need to by your spirit and by your word. And in the gracious way that you do, Lord, continue to form us after the image of our Saviour, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Open up with me to Psalm chapter 1. This was the first of our Bible readings. If you're using the church Bibles, it's on page 448. Basically right in the middle. Just open the middle, go back a little bit. Psalm chapter 1. Now, in case you're unaware, the Psalms are a collection of songs that Christians, early Christians of a sort, uh, God's people, um, sang for centuries. Okay? And this is the very first of the songs. It's the first song on the album. It sort of sets the tone for the whole rest of the, the 150 song discography to follow. And it does so with a really clear message. It says there are two ways to live. And the way to true life is by being immersed in God's word. I want you to listen and look with me. Verse 1. Blessed is the man or the woman. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. We begin with this description here of the blessed person, or more literally, kids, here's what blessed means. It means happy, the happy person, right? Here is the happy person, the person who's happy with God because they've been brought into good relationship with him. And so it goes with joy and contentment and life with him. That's why this person is happy. But then we also get a contrast. Here is who this person is not. The blessed person is the one who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. Remember back to last week, if you were with us, Romans chapter 12. Do not be what? Conformed to the ways of the world. Good, glad you remember. Do not be conformed to the ways of the world. This person here, right, is not conformed to the ways of the world or cast in the, the mould of the culture around them. They are not walking in the way of the wicked, nor standing. And notice the sense of regression here in the phrases. They're not, they're not walking, following after the ways of the world, nor are they like standing, sort of saying, I'm standing in solidarity with what the world says is true and good, nor are they sitting down, right, putting down their roots in this world. That is not the blessed person. They've actually left the old life behind. They've, they've stood up and they've walked a different direction. What direction have they walked in? Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What habit marks the life of the blessed person? It's meditation on God's law. Now, lots of different ways of, of understanding what that word law means. Um, the main ones are, it could mean the Ten Commandments. It could mean the first five books of the Bible. That's the law, the Torah that Moses wrote. I think here it's actually referring to the entirety of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, in terms of how this is fulfilled. Right, The one who meditates on the word of the Lord. The scripture that God has given us. This person isn't walking, standing, sitting in the ways of the world because instead they're meditating on scripture. And notice that this is something that marks their everyday life. He meditates day and night. 
Now, uh, keep your finger here at Psalm chapter 1. Can we flick over to Psalm 119? Yes, there are that many psalms. Now, Psalm 119 is the longest song on the album. Okay, it's almost 200 verses. <laughs> uh, and, and I want to point us here, it's not many times you can say this in church, let's look at verse 147. <laughs> okay, verse 147. This psalm is basically a love letter to God's word. It's a beautiful psalm. And I want you to listen here to, to the habit that this person has. Verse 147 and 148, here's what it says. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Now, what do you picture here? Just imagine this person, picture them in real life. If you put them in the modern day, here's what I imagine. I imagine someone who sets a, a, a phone alarm a little bit earlier every morning and who then puts their phone aside or turns the TV off or puts aside the book or leaves aside their work a little bit earlier at the start of the night so that they can just have some more time in God's word, right? There's a sense of just they want to get into it, right? And not just at the start of the day and at the end of the day, flip back to verse 97 there. Listen to this. Oh, how I love your law. I love it. I can't wait to hear your word. It is my meditation all the day. This habit is so entrenched in their life that the blessed person just can't help but engage with Scripture. It's almost always on their mind. Isn't that what happens when a habit becomes second nature? When it becomes part of your muscle memory, it sort of gets down in your bones, right? You might start with the earlier alarm and start with putting away the work or the book or the phone a little bit. But, but over time, it becomes like a, man, I, I want more of this. This is just something, it's not just something I do, it's something that I am. The habit forms you, it becomes second nature. That's what I think we see here in Psalm 119. And so flick back with me then to Psalm 1, because remember, our habits form who we are. Our habits form who we are. So what sort of person does this make? The person who's immersed in Scripture day and night, all day long, meditating on God's Word. Who do they become? Verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he or she does, he or she prospers. Now, I've spent a little bit of time holidaying in the outback, especially as a kid. Some of you know my brother was a, a top-level swimmer, so I'd just get dragged around the country for his competitions. And so, you know, as a kid, we're driving around, and here's what you often see out in the outback. It is a thrilling vision. Well, you have eight hours to look out the window on the way to a swimming pool that you won't get to swim at. It's fantastic. And you just go, oh, yeah, great, another shrub. Dry, hot, boring, no signs of life. But if you drive closer to the rivers, you see something different. And particularly if you trace along the Murray-Darling River, you will see trees that look like this. Uh, this is called the Red River Gum. You seen these before? Probably you've seen gum trees before, right? They're everywhere. But the Red River Gum is special. It's it, because it, it traces along that Murray River and there's so many nutrients in the water. It's so much water. The roots just get so much life through them that these trees grow so tall, like 40 metres, 50 metres tall. 10 metres plus in circumference, right? Massive 
massive trees. Uh, in fact, they live, kids, this is crazy, these trees live for 500 years, a thousand years. Imagine that. Imagine living for half a millennium or a whole millennium because they've got their roots down in this nutritious water. Now, in fact, um, indigenous folk, they would take uh, some of the, the leaves from these trees and some of the bark from these trees and turn it into medicine. They would use this for, for hundreds, thousands of years. This is a, a beautiful, long-living, useful tree because its roots are down in this river. So too, the blessed person. The one who plants their roots in God's word, who immerses themselves in scripture. They are like a tree planted by streams in water. It yields its fruit in season. It's useful. Its leaf doesn't wither. It lasts in all that he does. He prospers. There's life. Now, why is that? Why is it that Scripture gives us so much? Why is that the nutritious river for us? Because if we didn't have God's Word, we wouldn't have life. <laughs> have you thought about that? God spoke all of creation into existence with words. Let there be light. His speech created everything out of nothing. Hebrews 1, which we looked at before Christmas, we heard that Jesus upholds the universe by the what? The word of his power. His words sustain every breath, every breath of yours, every day you live. If God did not speak, you would not be alive. And that's also true when it comes to eternal life. If God had not spoken, we would not know the way to live eternally with him. Right? We can look around at the world. This is what theologians call general revelation. We, look, we can look around at the world, look at these trees even, and we go, what do we learn about God? And we might say, well, he's powerful. He made those trees. He's wise. He made them with roots that get water. Right? He's loving. He's made trees that actually help us with our breathing, carbon dioxide, oxygen, all that stuff. Uh, he, he's powerful, he's loving, he's wise, yep, very good. But here's some things we can't learn by looking at the world around us. Why are we here? Tree won't tell me. How does God want us to live? Does he want us just to hug trees? Why are things so broken? Am I right with God? No human mind using its own capacity can work out the answers to those questions simply by looking around at general revelation in the world or by using logical reasoning or by looking inward at the self. Cannot happen. Not by any other method, but by God himself speaking. And he's done so. He has spoken through scripture. Here's what we find. He's given us answers to these questions. Why are we here? Why are we here? We are here to know God and to enjoy him and to glorify him. To make our lives about him. Look back at the garden, Adam and Eve. That was why they were created. How does God want us to live? By loving him above all else. And loving our neighbour as ourself. That's how Jesus summarised the whole law in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to look at that, by the way, in term one. We're going to come to that passage. Love, your, love God above all else and love your neighbour as yourself. We're going to get really into the depths of that. So come along term one. 
Why are things so broken? Because we failed to live the way that God wants, haven't we? We have failed to love him above all else. We have failed to love neighbor as ourselves. That's why the world is so broken. That's why we are so broken. Am I right with God? No. 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 Because instead of listening to him, we've all run off and done our own thing. Right? I don't know if you felt this when Psalm chapter 1 was read out and when I started talking about the blessed person. But I don't know if you, as you were hearing this and you go, that's not me. No, I'm not meditating on scripture all the time. Right? Actually, actually, I look at my life and I see ways in which I have also walked in the way of the wicked. Not only that, I've stood in solidarity with the world and what it calls good, but what God calls evil. And not only that, I've sat down in it. I, I can look back and sometimes even look presently and see ways in which I have built my life on those things. Instead of listening to God's word and doing what he says, I have spurned God's word. I've ignored God's word. And I've said, get lost. I'm going to do my own thing. I know better. That's all of us. We are not the blessed person. We are the person who has walked away from God and sat in a life of our own making. And if things remain that way, God will call us to account. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. They are not blessed. They are not like this tree that prospers. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. They are like the sawdust that flies up when you're cutting a piece of wood. They are like the flower on the kitchen bench that when you put the bread and it goes up and it's gone. They are like the morning mist. They won't be able to stand in God's judgment, but instead will perish. And that is all of us. That is our destiny. God has spoken. That's the final word. Unless, of course, God speaks again. And he has. He has. And not just with sentences or verbs, but with a person. He has spoken through the word. In John's gospel, John chapter 1, this is how he talks about Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, right? The ultimate revelation of God, Jesus Christ. He shows God's love for us by dying on the cross, being treated as the rebel that we are in our place, exchanging his perfect sinless life for our one of of walking in wickedness and sitting and scoffing against God's word. Jesus exchanges those lives at the cross. He dies, he rises again, showing that for all those who trust in him, sin no longer has a hold on them. They are freed and forgiven. God has spoken. He has revealed a way to be saved. I hope that grabs you. I hope that unsettles you and makes you go, wow, why would God do this for me? Well, only out of love. Only out of love. He has spoken through Jesus and he's still speaking today. He is still speaking today through the words of the Old Testament and the New Testament that point us to Jesus Christ. They point us to Jesus and the salvation that he's brought. God is speaking to you right here, right now. Are you presently trusting in Jesus Christ for the hope of salvation and new life? Because if so, then you are like a tree planted by streams of water 
you have been given the benefits that are Christ's. He gave his life for you so that you might have his life. The one of always being connected to God. The one of now being reconnected, atoned with God. The happy life. The blessed life. The one of being right with God. If you trust in Jesus. No longer judgment or being blown away like chaff, but eternal life. And what that means is who you are has changed. You are now planted like a, like a tree by streams of water. You are now the blessed, prospering person, as in prospering in God. And therefore, you can learn to become the person that Psalm chapter 1 talks about. Because your roots are now somewhere else, you can learn new habits. It starts with God's forgiveness it continues with God's grace in how we live. And so with that in mind, I want to pull us back to just two words in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2. Two words. What does it look like for someone to have their roots in Scripture, their roots in the Word of life? What does it really look like to be immersed in Scripture? Two words here. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Two words, delight, meditate. Now, I'm making an assumption here, but everyone in this room who's over the age of six or seven or eight, you can read, right? <laughs> Unless if you've got a disability that keeps you from reading, maybe you can listen, right? You can hear, you can listen to an audio book. You can, you can read in some way, shape or form. In fact, uh, we have a, a public school system that's government funded that makes sure <laughs> that by the time we leave, generally speaking, we can read in some way, shape or form. What a good thing. Praise God. Notice this verse doesn't say, blessed is the one who reads God's law. Blessed is the one who reads their Bible. There's something more here, isn't there? It's the one who meditates and who delights. Think about that word delight. What do you delight in? If you ask someone close to you, what do you delight in? What would they say? What would they say that you delight in? If I asked my wife what I delight in, she'd give varying answers. She knows me very well. She'd say, oh, obviously you delight in me. And you delight in our daughter, Zoe. She'd also say something like, you delight in camera gear, like a strange amount. <laughs> like, like, and not even just in taking photos. No, just in the gear itself. That's, yeah, and, and now how does she know that? Well, she knows that because we, we share a YouTube account, and so all she needs to do is look in the history or the watch later, and there it is. There's just all these videos of nerdy talking heads shaking a lens around and saying how the lens is. It's like, it's so lame. If this is your hobby too, please come and talk with me. I'm so lonely. <laughs> but, but like, she just has to look at my habits, right? She just has to look at what I do with my time when I've got a choice about what I do with my time. I'm searching out videos of, of reviews and I'm, I'm dreaming about a new picture that I could take with this new gear or I'm browsing Facebook Marketplace and seeing if there are any good deals. And I barely any, ever buy anything, by the way. It's window shopping. But, but yeah, that's what I do. That, there is something that I delight in, right? And it comes out in my habits. It's okay for me to delight in that, isn't it? Uh, this shouldn't become like a confession or something. <laughs> but what, what is it that you delight in? Have a think about that. 
What is it that you delight in? What is it that you sit and dream about when you've got a chance to just sit and dream? What is it that captures your imagination? What is it that you seek out on your phone or your computer when you've got a spare moment? What is it that you lose yourself in? Remember, our habits follow what we long for. They follow what we desire. They follow what we worship. They follow what we delight in. Which prompts the theologian John Stott, now deceased, to challenge both of us, I think, with this observation. As a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of their God. You see what he's saying there? Uh, because you've been saved, the Holy Spirit has so worked in you and given you a new heart through Christ, your love has changed. That's just a fact of salvation. Your love will change. You will love God's word. You will love his law. You will love him directing. You will, you will love him. It'll be hard, but, but your love changes. They don't rebel against its exacting demands. Their whole being approves and endorses of it. And here's the key thing. Delighting in it, the godly will meditate in it or pour over it constantly day and night. Now, that sense of pouring over something, constantly imagining, having it on our mind. Now, that's good to do with our loved ones, isn't it? Sky and I, sometimes we miss Zoe when she's just not in the room anymore, and we go, oh, where is she, right? That's a good thing. That's a natural thing. It's good to do that as well with things like the footy or camera gear even, you know, to, to sort of just, oh, I have a hobby and, and I think about it. That's fine. But the bigger question is, do I delight in God's word to me? Do I delight in it and love it the way that I delight in and love those other things? Actually, wrong question. Do I delight and love it more than I delight in and love those other things? And where do I see evidence of that in my habits? Because that's where I'll see evidence of it. If someone who knows me well can say, yes, he delights in God's word. That's a wonderful thing. But can someone who knows you well say that about you? Which brings us to our second word, the word meditate. This is an imagery word in the original Hebrew language, by the way. So if a Jewish person was to hear this, they wouldn't be thinking like, oh, like meditate like that. They'd be thinking like of a cow chewing its cud. They hear meditate and they think cow, okay? Or they'd be thinking of a dog that's sort of munching on its bone. Or they'd be thinking of a lion gnawing on its prey and growling over it if anyone comes close. That's the imagery of, of this, the Hebrew word behind meditate. Okay, And the word meditate carries this image, therefore, of chewing over something, of eating at it, and maybe even of guarding it, holding it close to anyone who might threaten to take it away. Like Stott says, there's this sense of pouring over it constantly, eyes fixed on it, even like think a dog on a bone, right? You can't take a bone away from a dog. It's like just preoccupation, obsession even. And I want you to listen how Eugene Peterson puts it. Um, he's talking here about exegesis, okay? Exegesis is where we come to the Scriptures and we, we pour over the words and the phrases and the sentences, and we try to see how those words and phrases and sentences give us the meaning 
of the passage, the meaning of what God says to us. It's not we're coming with our own meaning and trying to find it there. We're, we're respecting the words and phrases, trying to draw the meaning out. That's hence exegesis, like exit. It's, it's coming out of the text. Okay, So he's talking here about exegesis. I love this. Listen to what he says. Uh, exegesis is the furthest thing from pedantry. It's, it's the furthest thing from just a nerdy preoccupation. Okay, Exegesis is an act of love. It loves the one who speaks the words enough to want to get the words right. It respects the words enough to use every means we have to get the words right. Exegesis is loving God enough to stop and listen carefully to what he says. It's an act of love. We love God. We love his words, so we slow down. We listen closely. He goes on. It follows that we bring the leisure and the attention of lovers to the text. Cherishing every comma and semicolon. Relishing the oddness of this preposition. Delighting in the surprising placement of this noun. Like We look at the words and go, wow, wow, wow. Lovers don't take a quick look and then get a message or a meaning and then run off and talk endlessly with their friends about how they feel about each other. Isn't that true? Think about young lovers, right, who are in the early stages of, of courting or dating or whatever. Right? They're not just like, oh, yeah, I guess she's all right. Yeah, I guess he's all right. Oh, let's go tell our friends about how much we love that person. No, they're preoccupied with each other. They look at each other. There's, there's sometimes there's obsession, right? That's what Eugene Peterson is saying here. That there's, there's this love for God's word. It might sound awkward, but when we talk about our Bible reading, actually we're talking about our love life. And maybe as we hear a quote like this, and get this picture of desire, you might feel a bit like the husband or wife who's been pulled in for marriage counselling, right? Like, oh no, there's something wrong with my relationship. That's okay. That's actually all right, because God's the best of all counsellors. And he works in us to cultivate new desires for him and his word. We looked at that last week, right? He redirects our desires, and he redirects our direction in life. So when we immerse ourselves in Scripture, things happen. And this, again, this is so different to what the world can promise us with any piece of literature. It's that when God commands something, He also enables it to happen. And so when I sit down with Scripture, even when the cover feels like lead and it's so hard to open, right? Like the desire isn't there. But I sit down and I open up. Here's some of the things that happen for me, Okay. I come face to face once again with my need for a saviour, my need for Jesus. Because when I come to scripture, I'm reminded of my sin, <laughs> right? I'm reminded of just how much I still fall short. Uh, some people look at pastors and they go, wow, he's the guy who's obviously got it most together of all the people in the room. No, <laughs> all right? We are all still growing. And in fact, the more that I know God's word, the more I know that I'm responsible the more that God shows my sin to me, the deeper the gravity of it becomes. And so that draws me again to my need for Jesus, for a saviour. It, it, it brings about in me again an awe at the gospel of God and how great is his love. It makes me trust and love him all the more. And then not only that, but I'm reminded of this bigger story. God has in fact been speaking for thousands of years through his word. I'm just catching up, right? He began speaking at creation. And there's this bigger story of creation and of fall. But then of redemption through Jesus. 
and of consummation when his kingdom comes. And we will be there together with him and his people. This big story. right? And there is an offer, an invitation to find ourselves as part of it. Here we are between redemption and consummation. We're part of this bigger story. And we find life in it. Life with God and his people. And so scripture points me again to this much bigger story than the world could ever offer and this much better invitation that the world could ever offer. So why would I walk away? Why would I go and walk in the way of the wicked or, or stand in sin or, or sit in sin and build my life there again? Why? Give me Jesus. Give me more of him. Do you see? This is what happens when we make the habit of opening our Bibles and immersing ourselves again. It's not only immersing, really reading, really slowing down with it. Exegesis is an act of love and God promises to work through it. Wherever you start, whether it's with the desire to worship God and so you open your Bible or you're just going to lay another brick today because you know that it's what the Lord wants you to do and that the delight will follow, the desires will follow over time, Right? We need to be immersed in Scripture. Immersed, which means not just reading, but delighting. Not just rushing through, but meditating. Don't rush, don't rob yourself. Shield over. Not just understanding, useful, helpful, essential to understand God's Word. But not just understanding, trusting. Not just thinking, but doing not just coming on our terms, but on his terms. And look, the temptation with any sermon on the importance of Bible reading is that I finish by saying something like, okay, so what you've got to do is set a routine, right? Put a little thing in your calendar on your phone and and make an appointment with God and, and just keep making that appointment every single day, right? That's what you've got to do. Now, wisdom to that, tremendous wisdom to that. Um, but there's something I think that's better to say, which is read in order to live, This is your life, friends. Read in order to live. How important is it to be alive? Stupid question. (laughs) Read in order to live. It's a perspective shift. It's less about finding time, more about finding life, do you see? uh, More about finding your place in God's bigger and better story and finding yourself again and again at the feet and in the arms of your Saviour. Form your habits around that rather than just checking the box. And so to finish up, I've, I've got a set of questions for us. I'm not going to give you, here's five, Dan's five top tips for reading the Bible, okay? I, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give us some questions. And these will help us, I think, orient our lives more around that idea of immersing ourselves in Scripture and of delighting in God's Word and in Him. Here's the first question. Do I want to be immersed more in Scripture? I want to. And what does that tell me about who I really am? We follow our desires. We follow what we worship. And how you answer this question will either give you great assurance in your salvation, especially if you're someone who struggles with Bible reading, right? But if the desire is there, you know, this can give you great assurance. Or it can give you something to think about. Second question. What would it take for me to rush less and slow down more? Asking myself that same question. And I understand with, with kids or with busy work, this is hard. It feels like you know, I can't answer that question. 
But again, I want you to picture the person in love. They don't rush on. They linger. That's the image that scriptures, scriptures give us. What you might even want to do is, is take Psalm 119. This is what I did this week. Take Psalm 119 and just go through and circle every time that it talks about delight or love or meditation. Underline, circle, mark your Bible up. It's a good thing to do. Don't rush. Don't rob yourself. What would it take for you to slow down? Is there anything I need to detox from so I have space for this? You know, the, the concept of detox, you take a break from something so that you can redirect your time and, and your energy. What would it look like for me to scroll less through the camera stuff, <laughs> right? And have more space and time for God's word. It's okay to have hobbies. We should have hobbies. All of life is God's. But there is an importance to his word, isn't there? This is where we find our life. Do I want to detox from something? Is that a desire in me? What does that show about me as well? Last question. How can I cultivate desire for God's word when I wake up and throughout the day and before I go to bed? Because, look, I mean, we can't read the Bible all day, can we? That would, in fact, be unfaithful because there are things that God commands us to do in Scripture. We have to go and actually obey God's word and we need to do good at our jobs and raise our children well and all that sort of stuff, okay? We need to rest, we need to sleep. However, in between doing our work, cleaning the kitchen, running after the toddlers, how can I cultivate a desire for God's word? And how can I chew over what he has said to me? That's the meditate bit. How can I cultivate a desire? How can I chew it over? Right? How can you get that process going at the start of the day? It starts with what we first grab for, doesn't it? Is it the phone? Man, that's the temptation for me. I fail at that more often than not. It's something for me to change. How can you keep that process going throughout the day? How can you take the little moments that are normally dead time and use them to cultivate desire for God's word? Like a, a kid who's, who's just been reading his favorite book and been told you have to put it down and go into school. He's like, oh, I want to get back into it. How can you, you take the dead moment when you're brushing your teeth, when you're waiting for the toast to pop up, waiting for the kettle to boil, when you're in that drive to work, when you're making the lunch, when you're changing the nappy, how can you take those moments and use them to cultivate greater desire, longing for God's word and chewing over what is said to you? There's our questions. And it all takes discipline, right? <laughs> all habits take discipline. Putting brick on brick on brick day by day it can feel quite ordinary, it can feel quite humdrum at times, but God is at work in the ordinary. These are his ordinary means of grace, and the outcome, remember, is anything but ordinary. For he or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and in all he or she does, he or she prospers. Let's pray for God's help. Lord God, thank you for what you have spoken to us through your word this morning. We want to submit ourselves again to you. We pray, Lord, for fresh delight. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would awaken love in us. We pray even just for the, the gumption, Lord, by your spirit's help, to keep opening the covers of this precious gift that you've given us, this gift of life in your word, and so be formed by you day in and day out. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Please talk about this, by the way. Talk about this. The questions will be up on the screen at the end. If, Rob, if you can organise that uh, at the end of the service. Talk about these things, okay? Talk about what's working for you and, more importantly, what isn't, all right? We're going to share in communion together. Uh, this is a moment where, uh, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, God reorients our delight. He reorients our love back towards Him. Uh, and so the helpers are going to come. They're going to stand down here with um, the, the elements. If you are someone who is currently...